This is the Incubator and the Neonatology Review Podcast. We are your study buddies for neonatology topics. I'm Dr. Ben Korsha. And I'm Dr. Daphne Yasova Barbo. Welcome. Hello, everybody. Welcome back to the Incubator and Neonatology Review Podcast. We are doing infectious disease. Um, Daphna, how's it going? It's going well. All right. I learned a lot about varicella yesterday. <laughs> you were upset about that question. I'm sorry. You're the one who's supposed to have the questions ready. I just pulled up the thing. I... That's right. That's what I get for not having the questions Yeah, ready. you're the editor-in-chief. I mean... Be, I had them ready. I just couldn't pull them up. I know, but I cannot. <laughs> you can fashion. see. You can see how I should not be trusted with that. Uh, <laughs> should not be trusted with that. Okay, on to the cl- the clostridi the clostridium section. Let's do it. Okay, so like I said yesterday, I like to do these together because they're almost like opposites, but they you can get confused because they sound similar. So clostridium botulinum, an anaerobe gram-positive bacillus that may lead to botulism. So this is from airborne spores from soil, dust, or the thing we always remember is honey. It emits a toxin that inhibits release of acetylcholine from nerves. So the clinical picture is really one of um, lethargy, hypotonia, um, progressive weakness that can lead to symmetric descending paralysis, ocular nerve palsies, and respiratory muscle weakness. Um, it can also be accompanied by constipation, poor feeding, um, weak cry, and it is typically afebrile. The disease most commonly presents at two to four months of age, usually less than six months, but again, depends on obviously the exposure, but we know that younger babies are at higher risk. You can identify the toxin in the stool and or identify the organism by stool culture. So you could either find the toxin um, that is uh, released or you can identify the organism itself. You can also use um, an electromyograph um, to look at the the muscle um, frequencies. So the EMG shows an incremental response at high frequency. Um, It also shows abundant, brief, small amplitude action potentials. So your EMG would be abnormal in um, botulism. The management is mostly supportive. Um, Obviously, close monitoring of the respiratory needs, nutritional care, gavage feeding, may or may not uh, require intubation depending on the respiratory weakness. Um, You would administer human-derived intravenous botulism immune globulin, and this has been shown to decrease days of ventilation and length of ICU stay. It is important to note that antibiotics are not helpful in um, the treatment of botulism. And in fact, antibiotics can actually increase the muscle blockade in botulism. So unfortunately, some of these clinical signs would lead us to work up a baby for sepsis. Um, And so again, you have to have a really high index of uh, suspicion. Um, Standard infection control uh, precautions. 
Um, but I think this is a reasonable question. Um, the toxin does bind irreversibly. Um, and so there's a need to regenerate nerve endings that typically requires several weeks. Um, there can be a 5% recurrence rate. Um, but fortunately, with administration of um, the immune globulin, less than 1% mortality. So we'll move on to Clostridium tetany, um, which creates a clinical picture of tetanus, um, and talk about how they're a little bit different. So this is a gram-positive bacillus. Um, so they're both gram-positive bacilli. This one leads to tetanus, like I said, also an anaerobe um, that is found in soil and feces, though is pretty rare in the U.S., and while Clostridium botulinum it, uh, emits a toxin, um, Clostridium tetany um, is spore-forming, but also releases the tetanus toxin. And so the tetanus toxin binds to the neuromuscular junction and blocks GABA release in tetany. The tetanus toxin binds the neuromuscular junction and blocks GABA release. And so this uh, creates the clinical picture of rigidity, muscle spasms, crying, seizure activity, lockjaw, which is not always seen in neonates, hyperreflexia, epistotonus, um, and can also be accompanied by myoglobinuria, renal failure, difficulty swallowing. Um, and so, like I said, it's kind of the opposite of uh, botulinum. Uh, the symptoms are secondary to the toxin, which leads to the decreased acetylcholine release. And infection can spread through the umbilical vessels. So the management is also supportive care, but you would provide the tetanus immune globulin to neutralize the circulating unbound toxin. And in this case, um, antibiotics are useful. So parental penicillin G for 10 to 14 days um, is the treatment of choice with cl for Clostridium tetany in conjunction with the tetanus immune globulin. Um, you may need a diazepam to decrease just the symptoms of spasms, and you do still need to vaccinate the in infant since disease does not lead to immunity. Okay? Okay. Your turn. Sorry, I was muted again. Okay. So I'm going to go into... Um, um, hmm. I was actually hoping... Hmm. All right, it is what it is. What did you want to do? I wanted to do urea plasma. Okay. Yeah. But do it. <laughs> okay, fine. 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 I was looking for something else. It's all good. Fine. I thought it was going to be in association with something else. Okay. So the next thing we want to talk about is on page 86, it's urea plasma urea lyticum. Now, interestingly enough, uh urea plasma is something that who, who whose epidemiology is 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 really important. Colonization is present in half of sexually active women in the lower genital tract. So, it is something that is really out there. Transmission during delivery is likely from an asymptomatic colonized woman to her infant. And urea plasma may colonize the throat, the eyes, the umbilicus, and the perineum of newborns. And this colonization may persist for several months after birth. Now, 
interestingly enough, there are potential pregnancy complications to uh, recurrent to uh, urea plasma infections, specifically recurrent pregnancy loss and preterm labor. In terms of infants, it's unclear if there's uh, an association between very low birth weight infant with upper airway colonization by urea plasma and the development of bronchopulmonary dysplasia. But the association has been reported in multiple uh, studies, but the, what I guess what, what the, the authors here are trying to say is that there's not been a big randomized, uh, double-blind randomized control trial that really looked at this. Now, it's, on, it's from the same family as mycoplasma, um, and it's a small pleomorphic bacteria that lacks a cell wall. Transmission usually happens from a colonized pregnant individual to her fetus or neonate by either ascending uterine infection with invasion of the amniotic sac, think um, preterm uh, rupture of membrane, it can be hematogenous route with placental infection and umbilical vessel inv invasion, or infected maternal birth canal with colonization to the infant skin, mucosal membrane, and respiratory tract. Now, clinically, a positive culture does not represent a definite infection. Uh, intrauterine amniotic inf infection can persist for weeks, leading to a chronic chorioamnionitis picture, um, and neonate can develop something looking like congenital pneumonia with sepsis, and even meningitis. So in terms of um, management, erythromycin, um, treatment with erythromycin for asymptomatic colonized pregnant individual is not proven to prevent preterm delivery. Antimicrobial treatment with erythromycin for colonized preterm infants failed also to prevent uh, pulmonary disease in small trial. So the big question, which has always been, should we add azithro or erythromycin to our empengent to cover for potential urea plasma, especially in preterm infants, has not ever been, has not yet been rooted in evidence. Now, a positive blood culture is not an absolute indication for therapy if the infant is asymptomatic because urea plasma organisms may be present in the CSF blood or respiratory tract with little or no adverse clinical outcome, partly because urea plasma often cleared spontaneously without treatment. Clinical manifestation should be present in the infant before initiating antibiotic therapy. If the decision to treat erythromycin is the first-line antimicrobial for neonatal urea plasma infections that do not involve the CNS, erythromycin in newborn associated with hypertrophic pyloric stenosis, cardiac toxicity, and possible hepatotoxicity, um, and newer macrolides have not really been well studied. For now, for neonates that have urea plasma identified in the CSF, you should consider observation if they're symptomatic or treat with tetracyclines, which have better CSF penetration if persistent positive CSF cultures in symptomatic or asymptomatic infants. Uh, susceptibility testing is recommended, and isolation for these infants involves standard precautions. Okay, before we delve into viruses, I have one more. I have Haemophilus influenza, right? Can, we, can I do that mm -hmm. one? Mm -hmm. Okay, so Haemophilus influ influenza is a gram-negative cacobacillus. Um, it's both encapsulated and non and non encapsulated. So we have strains of both. Um, the most common one, especially because of uh, widespread vaccination, is the non typable H flu. Transmission happens either intrapartum or postpartum. Intrapartum can be in two ways. 
either by aspiration of the infected amniotic fluid or by contact with infected genital tract secretions. Postpartum, uh, H-flu can be uh, acquired by respiratory droplets. It leads to uh, symptoms of sepsis, pneumonia, meningitis. It can also lead to arthritis, cellulitis, otitis media, and pericarditis. Um, the diagnosis is made via uh, culture, and the management involves cefotaxime or ceftriaxone initially, and then ampicillin if the organism is sensitive to it. The length of treatment is 7 to 10 days, IV longer if you're dealing with a complicated infection. Now, interestingly enough, and I think that's fair game for the question, dexamethasone, if meningitis, to decrease the risk of hearing loss, which is ideally given before or with the first dose of antibiotics. So if you have a patient with H-flu and you're treating with cefotax or ceftriaxone, you should pick the answer choice that adds cefotax, ceftriaxone um, with dexamethasone. Standard precautions uh, are, are necessary for infection control. If there is invasive disease, then droplets for 24 hours after antibiotics are initiated. Okay. Okay. I think we should do a question. Go for it. And then bump into viruses tomorrow. Sounds good. Okay. This one you're going to get right. We're, we're revisiting yesterday's discussion on tuberculosis. Let's see if I remember. <laughs> this is question number one. You're going to get this one right. An asymptomatic neonate is born to a mother with a positive PPD, a normal chest radiograph, and absence of clinical disease. The nurse asks if the infant needs to be separated from his mother. Which of the following is a correct response? A, a PPD should be placed on the infant, and the infant should be separated from the mother until the results from the PPD are available. B, the infant and the mother do not need to be separated. C, the infant should be separated for 48 hours. D, the infant should be separated for one week. E, the infant should be separated from the mother until she is treated with isoniazid times one month. All right. I remember this. Um, so we're looking for the um, correct response. Mm -hmm. And um, I think the infant and the mother uh, do not need to be separated. That's right. Answer choice B. The infant and the mother do not need to be separated. This is an asymptomatic infant born to a woman with a positive PPD, a normal chest radiograph, and no evidence of active infection, thus do not need to be separated. However, if the mother had an abnormal chest radiograph, the infant and the mother need to be separated until it is confirmed that the mother does not have active tuberculosis. If the mother has inactive disease, the infant has minimal risk of infection and can rejoin their mother. However, the mother should be continued uh, to be monitored with frequent clinical evaluations and PPDs every three months for one year and subsequently um, every year, so annually. If an infant is born to a woman with active TB infection, the infant should receive isoniazid until three to four months of age when a PPD can be placed, and these results will then determine the subsequent management plan. Okie dokie. That sounds good. Okay. Bye, right, see you tomorrow. Bye. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Incubator and Neonatology Review Podcast. If you like our show, please leave us a review on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. 
would love to hear from you, so please feel free to reach out to Daphna and I via email by sending your messages to nikupodcast at gmail.com. You can also message the show on Twitter at nikupodcast. Thanks again for listening and see you next time. This podcast is intended to be purely for entertainment and informational purposes and should not be construed as medical advice. If you have any medical concerns, please see your primary care practitioner. Thank you.